The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, Seb, England's three-tier lockdown system could actually need to be strengthened because the government uh, is trying to get a grip on the coronavirus spread across the country. Now, according to Public Health England, the changes could come into effect after the four-week national lockdown in England comes to an end or is meant to come to an end on the 2nd of December. Why do we think this? Well, speaking at number 10, the PHE Deputy Director Susan Hopkins revealed that there had been very little benefit from the tier one restrictions in some areas. So, you know, whatever you call it, the restrictions could end up staying in place. Yeah, I mean, it follows very nicely from a conversation we had yesterday with Mike Kane, the Labour MP up in Greater Manchester, who said he expected a lockdown by stealth after December the 2nd with essentially very high tiers of, uh, of measures in large swathes of the north and across the country. Today, Greater Manchester's Labour Mayor Andy Burnham was particularly critical. He told Bloomberg he expects further restrictions also to hit the north hard. I don't think there is any real evidence that they've driven cases down. Even the tier three restrictions, I don't necessarily see what was said yesterday, that they've been as successful as was claimed. So I have my doubts about uh, regional lockdowns. What I would have done would have been a a um, sharper circuit break. Um, I would probably have included schools within it Mm. because that would have then got the cases down and we know that that is the only uh, system that is sure to work. Yeah, uh, that was uh, Andy Burnham speaking to me earlier this morning. Uh, Joining us now, though, is Andrew Bridgen, who is the Conservative MP for North West Leicestershire. Good morning. Thank you for being with us, um, Andrew. Uh, I'd love to get your view then on this idea of a strengthened tier system. Would you support it? Yes, because we've got to keep the uh, transmission rate of the virus under control until we get to the point of having the effective vaccine introduced. Um, I think we will have a fourth tier, which will not, apart from the words, won't look an awful lot different to the general lockdown that the country is currently in at the moment. I think we will move to a regional system. 
my constituency of North West Leicestershire was in Tier 1. Uh, we had and, around 178 cases per 100,000 uh, prior to the lockdown. But obviously there were various infections in the, in the, in the pipeline. We, we, we've risen to nearly 300 mm. uh, and we'll be looking for, to turn that back down again. And I think it's quite interesting that there'll be a different psychology. Uh, the previous tiered system was basically if, uh, if you don't control the virus and abide by the guidelines and the rules, you move into more restrictions. Whereas where we're going now is that we're all in a lockdown. And if everyone abides by the rules and gets the R rate down, uh, then we release the, the lockdown. And that's, that's, that's more of a carrot than a stick. Yeah, and how's that psychology going to sit with your constituents? I mean, you're just down the road from, from Leicester itself, which, as we know, was the first area to go into local lockdown. Uh, this could well mean, as we, we learned from press reports, no indoor mixing over Christmas. Is that something that people of North West Leicestershire would, would accept? I think they, they would if it's uh, necessary. Obviously, it's nothing that we'd, uh, we'd look forward to in, in any way. And people will remember uh, this Christmas if... Uh, if there are severe restrictions in place. I was rather hoping that we'd got the R number down and we could relax the rule of six not to include children under 12 years old, which uh, there is considerable evidence that they do not uh, transmit the virus uh, easily. And that would have been nice. That might not be possible. But it's all very much in our own hands. If, if, if our people um, abide by the rules... We know that the lockdown works. It worked before to suppress the virus. If we suppress the virus, then we can have a, a better Christmas uh, altogether. But, um, and I would say that generally I've, I've been very impressed with the way my constituents have shown discipline and abided by the rules. Um, it's, it's been a, a, a source of great pride to me. Yes, uh, that is good. Um, the thing is, it, it is popular, and one can understand why. The public are on board with the lockdown. All of the polling shows that. But that, in some ways, is, is kind of easy. The health crisis is so obvious. The issue, though, is the cost of supporting people during uh, the lockdown uh, and the cratering of the economy that could happen if, if the lockdown continues for many more weeks. Speaking to Andy Burnham earlier this morning, he was asking for the Chancellor to devote um, more cash, more help for the sort of three million or so self-employed people who don't fall into a, a government programme. Is that something that your constituents want and need? Do you want the Chancellor to do more for those left out? Well, there certainly is a, a cohort of self-employed people who've fallen between the uh, support packages. And, and obviously, uh, how long this uh, pandemic and the lockdown's been going on for now, they're they are suffering a severe hardship and they are looking around and thinking, well, you know, other people are getting the support and I'm not. Uh, that's not, not a fair system and we do need to address those people who've had no support uh, throughout this long-running pandemic. What about this whole issue, Andrew, around uh, devolution, the Prime Minister saying that it's been a disaster for Scotland? Is that something you would agree with? Um, I, I would wonder... He'll be disappointed that that leaked out. Uh, I think he made a valid point in that it's the, the, the considerable devolved powers that the Scottish National uh, Party have, uh, uh, have had uh, through devolved government. Um, you know, health standards have fallen in Scotland dramatically. Education, Scotland used to have the highest educational achievement in the UK. 
it's now heading to, to the lowest. Uh, and obviously the reform of the police force has been uh, very dubious in Scotland. The, the SNP are always wanting full independence. Um, they can't handle the powers correctly that they're actually being given so far. And it's time that they were held to account uh, for this. Um, it, it has turned into a bit of a one-party state in Scotland, which is, is very unhealthy. Ouch. Uh, that is a tin ear, though, surely, uh, from the Prime Minister, and uh, if I can say so, from you too, to the idea of Scottish independence, which grows ever more popular. Do you think that the comments from the Prime Minister put Scotland's future within the UK at risk, then? No, I think the Scottish National Party put Scotland's uh, um, place in the in the Union uh, at risk. It's their, their hobby horse. It's what they they ride at any cost. And they just don't take account of the economic situation that Scotland finds itself in. It was it, it had an eight percent budget deficit without support from England, English taxpayers prior to the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. Um, I wonder what the, their uh, their deficit would be if uh, if they uh, uh, when we come out of this uh, pandemic. And of course, they 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 dream about being members of the uh, European Union and rejoining the European Union. It's interesting that they'd rather be ruled from uh, with laws from Brussels than they, than they would from uh, Westminster, where they've got considerable representation. Um, at the at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the Scottish National Party know that uh, that this is their last gasp at, uh, at independence because uh, a free, independent, sovereign uh, UK outside of the European Union, able yeah. to do free trade deals around the world. Um, Really, that's that's the end of their dreams of independence for Scotland. Well, I've got to ask you about that. I mean, I'm seeing these reports in The Sun today that cabinet ministers are pressuring the prime minister from the Treasury, from Bayes, to climb down to avoid a no deal and essentially to concede to the EU. What do you make of those? Um, laughably rubbish, I think. Um, there's no stronger Brexiteer around the uh, cabinet table than Boris Johnson himself. I think Lord David Frost has done a stole job representing our interests, and he's made it clear there'll be no back down uh, from our red lines in the Brexit negotiations uh, while he's the negotiator. So hang on. Um, we are do now at the compression point. Do you expect a deal then next week? People familiar with the discussions telling Bloomberg that actually officials there'll, are planning for a... the possibility of, of a breakthrough of that could, we could get on Monday. Of course, I think that whatever there's lots of deals have been done about lots of issues, from air travel to the claiming of pensions to uh, benefits, and all sorts of, of, of things have already been agreed. So, what, whatever happens, I think there will be an agreement, uh, which all sides will say is a great success. Whether that's the full-blown free trade agreement we're offering them, but I think, you, I think your listeners need to bear in mind that. Now, the, the UK is the European Union's largest uh, customer, biggest export market, with 17% of all exports from the EU currently heading to the UK. The fact that the European Union won't, uh, when offered a, a free trade agreement with a country where they have a, the EU have got a hundred billion a year trade surplus with us, so we're, we're buying 100 billion euros of goods more often than we sell to them. We are the customer. The fact that they, they won't do a no-strings-attached free trade deal says more about the insecurity of the European Union and, and their economic prospects going forward, and also says a lot about the fear they have that the UK economy will outperform the EU 
on the outside and uh, act as a siren call for other people to leave the block. And that's that's the conundrum they're placed in. But, but the stakes are pretty high for the UK as well. It would be foolish of them. Uh, also what, what do you to, think, to what do you think membership access to the single market adds to our GDP? What do you think it is? It's, it's probably less than 2%, given the effects of uh, coronavirus. No, no deal is always going to be better than a bad deal because we can recover from a no-deal situation. That will be very short-term. And we can do free trade agreements around the world with people who don't want to make our laws for us. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start, as always it feels, with Brexit. But we do have a good reason that UK and the EU could strike a deal early next week. This is according to Bloomberg sources. Uh, We also spoke to Ireland's Prime Minister. He spoke exclusively at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. He says the general scope of a future trade deal is now clear. Having met Boris Johnson, having talked to him, my sense is deep down his gut instinct is that he would see the sense of a deal. Um, and it would, from, politically, it would make sense that UK would arrive at a deal with the European Union. Uh, that was Michal Martin there, the Irish Prime Minister. Interestingly, he also warned that it wasn't quite clear to him if Boris Johnson really wants a deal. So there is still that perhaps slight lack of trust on the European side. Yeah, absolutely. Although all the whisperings uh, do now seem to be pointing towards potentially some kind of breakthrough, at least according to Bloomberg sources, on a Brexit trade deal, perhaps even as soon as Monday. But again, that's according to some sources. So let's see how it goes. Uh, Meanwhile, this caught my eye, Seb. Jacob Rees-Mogg has again called on MPs to do their duty and travel into Westminster rather than staying at home. The House of Commons leader and set out plans to allow clinically extremely vulnerable MPs to take part virtually in key debates after he was criticised when an MP with breast cancer was excluded. But those staying away to protect loved ones will actually be uh, not be included in that policy. Rees-Mogg says that MPs are key workers and must go to Parliament if they want to speak in debates. That's the news. The commentary from my uh, perspective, wonder about you, Seb, as business is trying to make sure that work from home operates, Seems odd that Parliament is in such a different position. Yeah, and this, of course, all started with Tracy Crouch, um, mm. who herself has cancer. She's a Conservative MP, uh, prompted the Bloomberg headline, UK lawmaker with cancer excluded from debate on cancer, which I think speaks for itself. But yeah. for not to stretch this to to the families or the MPs with families who are themselves sheltering for whatever reason, uh, seems a little bit short-sighted. I don't know. We'll see whether this continues and how much pressure he comes under from Parliament to to change that. And then we've got this story from the Mail. Volunteers without previous medical experience 
are being recruited to help with the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine. So St John's Ambulance apparently offering to teach those who are not first aiders how to administer injections. In just two days, they've managed to sign up 1,500 of their existing volunteers to help with the vaccination programme. They're now hoping to widen that out to people who haven't volunteered before. I don't know what I'd feel about having someone give me a vaccine who'd never given a vaccine before. Seb, I'm definitely volunteering you first for that <laughs> St John Ambulance shot. Thank you very much. Uh, right, well, those uh, that rounds off our top stories uh, this afternoon. Uh, meanwhile, let's move on, shall we, and talk about Dominic Cummings. He's out of Downing Street, ending a bizarre period in number 10, perhaps, some would say. The biggest impact of his departure will no doubt be on the hordes of special advisers who worked for him. So how will life change for them? Well, joining us now is uh, Lauren McEvitt, who is Managing Director at Morpeth Consulting and a former SPAD special advisor in the Cameron administration herself. So a warm welcome to the programme, Lauren. Good morning. Now, Cummings ran quite a unique operation by all reports. Uh, is it back to normal then at number 10? I think what's really interesting about the, the number 10 setup um, under, well, for the past just say, 18 months um, is that Dominic Cummings did not hold the chief of staff position. And my opinion on that is that that removed from him the obligations that come with holding that job while he also executed essentially a managerial role over many of the special advisors working for the government. So if we go back to when I was um, working in the Wales office of the SPAD, the chief of staff in number 10 was Ed Llewellyn. Um, and it was very clear to all of us that we worked um, for the prime minister, for our individual uh, secretaries of state or ministers within our department, ultimately were answerable to the prime minister who was able to give a yay or nay as to whether or not we were employed in the first place. But the prime minister's representative for that was Ed Llewellyn as the chief of staff. Um, now, it appears, uh, from my understanding of the way that the, the, the employment status has changed in the last 18 months, that a new contract was drawn up for them um, late last year, which involved Dominic Cummings holding a, a sort of managerial or at least oversight role of special advisors um, within the government um, without taking on the added responsibility of actually having a chief of staff role. So there was um, an execution of management with no check and balance to management, mm -hmm. which I think is, is a bad way of running. So any minister has come in um, as acting chief of staff, my understanding is that they are looking for a new chief of staff for the new year because um, Eddie has made it quite clear he wishes to uh, go back to the House of Lords um, and not do this full time for the long term. But I do think that that appointment is going to be key. And looking at the chiefs of staff, uh, such as Ed Llewellyn, for examples of, of how to hire that role, I think is going to be really important. And what about the atmosphere in Downing Street? I mean, you hear so much reported about how toxic it is at the moment, or at least was under Cummings. Is that just normal for a high-pressure government department or government job to have an, an environment like that? Or is that particular to this management? I mean, let's, let's not lie. Most administrations have had moments where all the advisors are fighting like ferrets in a sack. But this appears to have been a particularly poisonous environment for a longer period of time than, than, would, than you know, sort of a normal internal baseball uh, argument would last. Um, and that's not something that brings out the best either in the people who are working with you. It doesn't attract the best talent to some of these jobs because a lot of people just won't want to enter into that environment. Um, and it also doesn't actually produce a good product for the government. Special advisors have a very important role to play in government. They support ministers in a political fashion that both adds in the required political nous 
um, and advice into decision-making, while also protecting civil servants from ever having to be a part of those conversations, because obviously they sit between the two camps. Um, And if that system is broken, then you enter into a position where ministers aren't receiving advice um, that can be balanced for political and, uh, shall we say, um, bureaucratic. Um, But you also have situations where... Mm. In looking for advice of that nature, civil servants could end up sitting in meetings with ministers who who throw out questions that it's inappropriate for them to be a part of. Um, you know, obviously, most of them would feel obliged should you know, not answer, but even just being a part of those conversations really isn't fair to them in many respects. So I do hope that what comes out of this is a steadier ship, um, is less briefing, less backstabbing, um, and a, a move towards um, a happier... Uh, uh, entity of SPADs that, that can actually produce better products for the government. Oof, happier? Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised. Um, only because, um, look, that there is a danger here, isn't there, that, uh, yes, some Tory MPs and a lot of civil servants are cheering with the exit of Cummings, but actually the fundamental issues facing this government, which is getting long in the tooth, Tories have been in power since 2010, is that we aren't in an era of softly, softly, or of steady as she goes. This is an era of change. We've had a massive pandemic. Brexit is huge. We need dynamism um, in government. And okay, perhaps Cummings's brand of dynamism wasn't right. But talking about happier, steadier, perhaps is also not right. But happier, steadier in this respect means you have individuals who aren't spending 70% of their time wondering about whether or not they're going to be stabbed in the back by the person who sits next to them. And what I mean by that is they can actually focus on being dynamic. They can focus on the big ideas. They can focus on how they're going to level up um, parts of the country that have been left behind. But is the civil service... vote for the first time. Is the civil service in a position to do that? Because obviously Dominic Cummings' pet project was reforming the civil service. But I think we're talking about two different things here. The civil service and whether or not they're equipped to do it, that is a big question. And civil service reform is something that's going to remain on the agenda as far as I understand. Mm. What I'm talking about is whether or not special advisors are able to inject that political dynamism into the process or whether or not they're spending 70% of their time thinking they're going to be stabbed in the back by the person next to them. Um, and those, two, those are two fundamentals that, that have to exist in parallel, but both have to exist. Um, they, you know, this balance, these two sides of the coin, they have to exist at the same time. Otherwise, you, you're right, you don't have any dynamism in public policy and you don't have any steady delivery, which is also required at the same time. Um, what about Carrie Simmons, the, uh, the Prime Minister's partner? I mean, I know you've been defensive of her role in the past. How much of an advisory position should the partner of a Prime Minister have? I don't know that it's quantifiable in terms of how much should a partner have, but I think it's a complete mis- you know, it's a complete fallacy that a, a prime minister would have a partner who doesn't weigh in. Even the least political partners, when the door is shut at the in- at the end of the evening, would you know would pr- provide a sounding board to their partners. It's not like every prime minister is upstairs from number ten at the end of the day and only talks about lampshades and what's for supper. Um, it's a relatively new situation where the Prime Minister's partner um, comes from this background and is very well qualified in this. Um, but I don't believe that that changes the amount that a Prime Minister would listen to his partner. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, what about devolution? I mean, you were aspired actually to the um, Secretary of State for Wales. So I'm interested on yes. your perspective when it comes to Boris Johnson's comments about devolution being a disaster briefly. I think 
these comments don't reflect the political reality that we are in with devolution and that it's been here for over 20 years when it comes to um, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. Um, I think that the reality that exists within that is to say that devolution can't be abolished. Um, it can't just be done away with. It's, it's, it's here for the long term. It's how we work within the structures that exist, and it's how we build up new structures within the government to actively support it. Um, one of the things that I feel about devolution, and I've felt for a very long time, is that yeah. the structures that exist for um, dialogue between the parties here are very poor and that they must be addressed and they must be redesigned. But there is a danger in saying... You know, devolution is a disaster that you throw the baby out with the bathwater in, in, in just basically entering into a political fight that Edinburgh would love to have, um, instead of saying, right, how do we reform the systems that exist? How do we make sure that this union is the union fit for the 21st century? How do we make sure that we're making partners of all the devolved areas? Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.